0: Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome. And uh, last week, we started a sort of a uh, mini-series. We're in the middle of that now, only three weeks long, on the topic of prayer. And we're kind of basing that in the parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and chapter 18. This morning, we're in chapter 18 of Luke on page 1052, if you'd like to look that up in the Bible's. And let's uh, just uh, let's, let's pray to God for, for his word this morning. Lord God, we uh, thank you that once again we come before your word, which believe really speaks to us now, speaks to our hearts, speaks to our minds, and changes our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. May you do that for us here this morning. Amen. So just to uh, recap a little bit on last week, uh, we started with Martin Luther's final written words, which were you remember? It's good to know that your preaching uh, sort of uh, goes in and sticks. Uh, we are all beggars. That is true. We are all beggars. That is true. What does he mean by that? Well, he means in ourselves we are destitute, bankrupt, impotent, totally dependent on God at every point and every respect. It's true of our salvation. We have nothing of value, nothing of worth of our own to bring to God for our salvation. We can only throw ourselves on God and beg for his mercy. It's true of our Christian lives, where we ask for the Holy Spirit to make us new and change us and make us more like Christ. And it's equally true of everything that we have in life. The health, our health, children, food, clothing, jobs, homes, and so on. Everything that we have comes from God, we are, we, which is why sometimes we ask God for things. So before God's throne, we are all beggars. And we need to remember that as we look at Things that we should ask for. So, last week we tried to imagine uh, a beggar sitting in the streets of Norwich, setting up his stall, uh, laying out a blanket for his dog and putting out his bowl. And we tried to imagine the four questions uh, which the beggar might uh, like to ask. So, what is our motivation in asking? By what right do we expect to receive any help? What should we ask for? What should we expect? And last week's uh, passage from Luke 11 was in the context of the Lord's Prayer. And the parable taught us that we should be persistent in prayer. And we saw that our motivation for asking for things should be our desire to see God glorified. Hallowed be your name as we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer. And the right by which we expect any help is summed up by the first word of that Lord's Prayer. The first word being Father. Father. We are God's children and he will give us good things because he is our father. He will give us the Holy Spirit, the source of all good gifts. Well, Luke 18, the parable of the day, uh, 1 to 8, is another parable about being persistent in prayer. Verse 1 makes that clear. Jesus told them a parable to show the disciples that they should always pray and not give up. And as we go through this uh, today, I hope that we see some answers to the other two questions. What should we ask for? And what should we expect as we learn to wait and not give up? Because this parable is clearly set in the context of waiting. Just flick over the page and you'll see at the end of chapter 17, the Pharisees are starting a conversation with Jesus about when the kingdom of God might come. In verse 22 of verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples that they will long to see God's justice being revealed. And yet they probably won't live to see it they have to wait. And that's the challenge that Jesus throws down to all of us in verse 8 when he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will they persist in their prayers for as long as it takes? So last week we had the, uh, the parable of the man who received an unexpected guest and had to go and knock on the, the neighbor's door to ask for some bread. Well, this week, we have the parable of the powerless widow and the unjust judge. By all rights, this powerless widow should have been portrayed as a victim. But here she was, operating as a woman in a man's world. By rights, she had no right to be speaking to a judge at all. She had no legal rights, really, without a man going into the courtroom to speak on her behalf. And it's more than likely that the cause of her injustice that was causing her so much pain could actually have been some sort of family dispute. Perhaps her adversary was actually a male relative who was trying to deprive her of her inheritance. So she was on her own. She was forced to stick up for herself in a man's world. And by the, uh, the ways of the world back then, she had no chance, really, of getting justice. She was powerless. And yet by her persistence, her continual bothering of the judge, her continual coming to him, she gets what she wants. She gets the justice that she seeks. By her persistence, she becomes powerful. But here you also have the unjust judge who neither fears God nor cares about men. You see, fearing God was the first requirement of a judge in ancient Israel. They were told to fear the Lord and consider carefully what you do because you're not judging for man but for the Lord who is with you whenever you make a verdict. But they were also meant to care about people, these judges. That meant, amongst other things, they would seek justice by encouraging the oppressed, by defending the cause of the fatherless and pleading the case of the widow. And this judge neither feared God nor cared for people, and even less for this annoying widow who came knocking on his door every day. And yet, in the end, he gave her justice because of her persistence. So what does this story tell us about what we should ask for? Well, notice that the widow's request is for justice. You see, she knew that justice was something that God wanted. She knew that God wanted justice for the oppressed and the fatherless and the widows. She uh, She knew that things went well for Judah when they defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And they went badly when they didn't. In other words, she knew something about the whole theme of justice, which is an enormous theme in the Old Testament. She knew that this theme of justice was something close to God's heart. You see, in a way, God God doesn't leave blank checks lying around the place ready for us to go along and pick them up. Otherwise, we could just write in our name, our name as the payee, an amount, so to speak, in a rectangular box for whatever we want or think we want, and God would make it happen for us, wouldn't he? But it doesn't work like that. But there are. What we find is, we find that there is a whole book of checks, if you like, where the payee might be left blank, but the amounts are already filled in with things that God wants us to have. So there are checks in the book for justice. There are checks for renewed health. There are checks for new life and rebirth in Christ. There are checks for church growth. Checks for personal holiness and for a deeper prayer life and all manner of things that God wants us to have and would give him glory if he gave them to us. And as we pray, the payee line gets filled in. Either of our name or the name of some person that we're praying for. In effect, we should only be asking God for things that we know he would want us to have. The things that Jesus himself would go to the Father and ask for on our behalf. That's what it means to pray When we pray in the name of Jesus, it's not just a nice tagline that we put on the end of our prayers. It means that we believe that Jesus would stand alongside us as we present our requests to God the Father and give us his support. And if Jesus wants it, then we know that the Father will want it too, because we know that's the way they work. But how exactly do we apply these principles to our own prayers? Surely it's difficult to know what God wants, isn't it? But like that persistent widow, perhaps we know a little bit more than we realise. Take, for example, the Lord's prayer we read last week in, in Luke chapter 11. The three P's of the Lord's prayer: provision, give us each day our daily bread; pardon, forgive us our sins; and protection, lead us not into temptation. The Lord Himself taught us in that prayer to ask for these things. So I'd be very surprised if, the, if He didn't want us to ask for our daily needs, our provisions. Or for forgive, forgiveness, our pardon, or for protection from falling into sin, or perhaps we should think about the prayer that uh, from Paul that Emma read from Ephesians chapter three. You see, Paul prays there for the Christians in Ephesus that they might be rooted and established in love, that they might grasp, how, how, with full understanding, how wide and how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ. He prays that they might be filled with the fullness of God, and that the church there in Ephesus would bring God's glory. What congregation, home group, Christian family, or or Christian individual would not benefit from such prayers? And yet, how often do we actually go to those passages and pray through them for members of our small group, or members of here, and Holy Trinity? And there are other prayers just like that in Colossians 1, and Philippians 1, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's all well and good, I hear you thinking. But what about our prayers for very specific situations, for family or friends? What about those uh, uh, prayer uh, letters that we get from the mission partners asking for uh, specific things in very risky or difficult situations? How do we know what God wants in those situations? Well, a good starting point might be to remember our motivation to pray, and then, as part of our prayers, we can give God good reasons to answer them for his glory. See, that doesn't mean that we have to argue with God or twist his arm uh, until he falls into line with our way of thinking. That's about as futile as my son asking for a scorpion rather than an egg. I mean, I get nothing but a triple egg omelette for me, no matter how hard he argues. But it is good when we ask God for things, to give him reasons, to give him reasons why we think that, in a particular situation, the answer that we're asking for is a good one and would give him glory. So we want something to happen because it would generate good out of difficulty. It would save sinners to extend kingdom values or enrich church life so that people turn and give thanks to God in praise. And in in that way, our faith, our mind and our faith, has to engage with God's wisdom. And we begin to understand better what God wants us to ask for in prayer. And we'll be more likely to pray with Jesus, not our will, but your will be done. You see, once uh, the widow had worked out what she needed, that she wanted justice and that God wanted justice, she was completely unembarrassed about going to ask for it, wasn't she? She saw the need and she kept going to the judge with her plea. She never gave up. It's different from babbling like pagans, hoping to twist God's arm. When Christians pray, we don't just pray by heaping up phrases after phrases we haven't thought about very much. What is rewarded in this parable is the widow's persistence in asking for something which accords for God's will, his justice, and her persistent desire to see it come about. So if we should pray for things that God wants, what shouldn't we pray for? Well, the short answer to that is anything we want and ask for simply because we want it, and for no higher reason than that. Which is a shame, really, because I'm heading into midlife now, midlife, and it's about time that I had that nice two-seater convertible sports car, don't you? <laughs> Instead of these boring seven-seaters I drive around in all the time. Which brings us to the second question for this morning: What should we expect in our prayers? Well, verse six. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. You see, just as last week, we weren't meant to compare God with with the reluctant neighbor who refused to get out of bed. We're not supposed to compare God with the unjust judge and think, well, God's like that. You see, sometimes in our prayers, we make the mistake of approaching God as if we were a powerless widow, and God was a reluctant judge. Rather than as we should approach God, which is as God's chosen ones, verse 7. Approaching a God who moves quickly, verse 8. Jesus is saying, how much more will God, who loves justice and cares for his people, how much more quickly will he jump to answer the prayers of his chosen people? God answers to our prayers are much more positive than we ever expect. Some people say that God answers prayers in only three ways. Yes, no, and not yet. But I don't think that's quite right. Because I believe that God always answers our prayers positively. J.R. Packer, in his book on prayer, puts it like this. He says, God's yes is a case of, yes, your reasoning about how I could best meet this need was right. God's no is a case of, not that, for this is better. And so that's really a yes in disguise. And his wait is a case of wait and see. I will deal with this need at the best time, in the best way. Whether or not you'll be able to see my wisdom in the way that I act, is immaterial in a way. I'm going to do what I do. Keep watching and see what you can see. So when Paul, for example, prays in uh, chapter 12 to Corinthians for a thorn in his flesh to be removed, no doubt he was thinking that his ministry could be improved if he wasn't suffering from this continuing disability. And he knew from close experience that miraculous healings could bring much glory to God and much church growth. So he had two very powerful reasons to ask God to answer his prayers. And he put his prayers to God on three occasions. But God answered with a no. He said, no, in this case, I'm not going to do that for you, Paul, because actually it's better for you that you remain weak. Why? because my power is made perfect in weakness, says the Lord. Therefore, Paul goes on, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. On February 19th of 1812, Adoniram Judson set sail with his wife, only six days after their wedding, to fulfil their dreams of becoming missionaries in India. But when they arrived in India, they were denied entrance into the country by the bureaucrats of the East Indian Company. Eventually, after much uh, uh, effort and trials, they were forced to change their plans. God said, No, not that, but I have better plans for you. And they were sent to Burma instead, and they became the first ever Christian missionaries to Burma. In Burma they had a son who died after only eight months. Judson was imprisoned for 21 months and was sentenced to death, which he only narrowly escaped from. There were no converts and apparently no progress at all in that country for six long, soul-crushing, heartbreaking years. God was saying, wait and see. I will deal with this at the best time in the best way. Sometime after Judson died on April 12th in 1850, 38 years after he came to Burma, the Burmese government conducted a survey of its population and recorded that there were 210,000 Christians in the country. Had Judson's prayers been answered? More than he could have expected. More positively than he could have expected. But we're we're not good at waiting, are we? the widow had to wait for justice from the unjust judge and Jesus says that we should expect to receive justice quickly and yet in the very next line he's saying uh, we need to be persistent will there be persistent faith on earth when the son of man comes he's not talking there about general faith will will there be people who believe we know that there will be but he's asking whether there will be this very specific kind of persistent faith that the widow has demonstrated will we be, still be praying when the Son of Man comes, or will we have given up? Another story is told of the uh, the 17th century American preacher called Philip Brooks, who was noted for his poise and quiet manner. One day, however, a friend found him feverishly pacing up and down the floor of his study, like a caged lion in frustration. And he said, what's the trouble, Mr. Brooks? And Mr. Brooks replied, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. You see, we human beings are always in a hurry. But God sometimes keeps us waiting, because he's not. God has his own time frame, his own plan. We might think, come on, God, I've only got 10 years, or 20 years, or maybe 40 years left here on earth. How about answering that prayer? I've been praying for ages now. But God is thinking in terms of eternity. His day is like a 1,000 years, and his 1,000 years are like a day... God answers much more positively than we can ever expect but sometimes in a time frame all of his own so I'm not suggesting that in this life we will never know the pain of seemingly unanswered prayer even good, honest, pure hearted, persistent uh, requests for things that God wants which will bring him glory we may never see the answers to these prayers, I'm getting lower and lower here We may never see the answers to some of these prayers. David, in the Old Testament, prayed for his wayward son Absalom, whom he loved very much. But his prayers for him weren't answered. Paul prayed earnestly for his fellow Jews. Every time he went to a new place, he went to the synagogue and preached there first in order to win some of the Jews for Christ. And yet very few did. But God is working to a different time frame. And some of the answers will only be revealed on the day that the Son of Man comes. Some of you may have very long lists for prayer, such that there was only enough time to briefly run through the lists of names and put them all in God's hands in some ways. I'm glad that you have a long lists for prayer, but perhaps God is saying that you need to spend more time, thinking through the consequences of what you're praying for, allowing yourselves to be led by God to consider what His will really might be. It might mean that your lists need to be shorter, but they'll be more focused. And your prayer times won't be quite so easy. there will be more of a struggle, sort of struggle that Paul describes in his letter to the Colossians. But as you struggle in prayer, I think you're more likely to see the answers that you expect, and you're more likely to get the kind of boomerang prayers, in the sense that when you ask for something, part of the prayer comes flying back and hits you straight back on the head like that. Because God is saying, okay, yes, I want that. And I'll do my best thing to achieve that in my best time. But here's what you need to do about it. And I'm aware that, as ever with these kind of semi-topical sermons, there's insufficient time to answer all the questions and deal with all the issues around prayer. And if that's the case, uh, let's talk about it afterwards and we'll scratch our heads together. But please don't worry about prayer. If you're thinking, well, there's no point in me praying at all, I can't work out what God wants or what I should be asking for, be encouraged. Because in the very real sense, the Holy Spirit fixes our prayers on their way up to God. And when our words fail us completely, he's able to fill in the gaps on our behalf and intercede for us with groans that words cannot express. Next week, we continue in Luke 18 with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we shall see one more aspect of what gives us the right to receive help from God, and that's a pure and repentant heart. But for today, one, just, just one more missionary story. Missionary stories are great, aren't they? Full of uh, unanswered prayer, uh, answered prayer, and not yet prayers. In his lifetime, William Carey was the most well known missionary to India. He saw much progress there, many answers to prayer. Uh, and his many achievements in India gave him some kind of, sort of celebrity status. And on his deathbed in 1834, William Carey called out to his friend. He said, Dr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak only about Dr. Carey's God. I wonder... That when the Son of Man comes, will we have that kind of persistent faith that puts our trust and our hope in God, who is just, who loves justice and cares very much for his people, for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus taught us how to pray. We thank you because it's something that we find so difficult to do sometimes. And yet, Lord, you long for us to engage with you in prayer, to really engage with you, to put our requests to you, to put our hopes and our desires, to seek your will for the things that we're asking for. Lord, I pray that we would see, every one of us here, we would see answers to our prayers that would really encourage us over the next few days. I pray, Lord, that you would be uh, just filled with joy as we see you answering our prayers in new and miraculous ways. Lord, help us be persistent. Help us to pray continually, day and night, bringing our requests to you. In the name of Christ.